This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Emma Dunphy. Now the war in Ukraine has entered its second year. It's Putin's war. It went wrong from the very first moment of the invasion of Ukraine. And it has gone wrong in many ways for what Putin calls his special military operation. And we have been fortunate enough to talk to Johnny O'Reilly, a journalist and filmmaker, throughout this conflict. And he's been extremely helpful to us and to our listeners, telling us what's really happening He's written a piece now for The Currency. The Currency is an online publisher. It's a brilliant operation. And Johnny has written a really outstanding piece of print journalism for the latest edition of The Currency. And he joins us now from Kiev. Johnny, thank you very much. I know you're making a film and a documentary as well as doing your stuff for us and for The Currency. Your description of what's really happening and the difference between the Russian army or troops and the Ukrainians is really extraordinary. And I want to talk to you first about the first thing that went wrong. Putin's plan, as most people understand it now, was that they could take Kiev, where you're talking to us from, in days. They could put a puppet regime in place and the job would be done. They screwed that up by leaving all their tanks in a straight line in a traffic jam. Can you explain exactly what happened? Well, um, you've I mean, written for it start- very well uh, for the currency, so we just want to hear it from your own lips. Well, um, they almost did take Kiev, actually, but their uh, original plans were so uh, full of holes that there were many points at which the plan uh, was going to fail. I'm sure military historians will have plenty uh, to write about this, you know, now and in the future. But we we may all remember that 40-mile-long tank column that had, was coming from Belarus in the north and how ominous that all felt. Um, essentially, w- what had happened was that 
Putin had uh, kept his own middle-level commanders uh, unaware of his own plans until the very last minute. And to plan something on that scale, you need to organize everything from fuel, food, clothing, as well as ensure that all your troops and your commanders of smaller units know exactly what to do. So they started that whole uh, column without uh, sufficient planning. Yeah, and they called it uh, the, the invasion. They refused to call it an invasion or a war, a special military operation. Yeah, it was. Oh, yeah, it was a special military operation because Putin it did not want to alarm people at home uh, with, with the true scale of what he was planning. Um, in the with the assumption that it would be over very quickly. Yeah. Um, but what happened was the uh, they underestimated uh, the Ukrainians on the one hand. They didn't properly uh, put into their plans the ability of the Ukrainians to use uh, and to deploy this relatively new technology that the uh, British in particular, but also the Americans had supplied, these handheld N-laws um, and javelins. Um, and what happens when you've got a large column of tanks you know, coming your way, and you have a nimble army that can, under the cover of a forest, uh, attack those uh, cut that column is you 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 attack the first few tanks and then the back tank then the tanks at the back and you essentially create a a kind of a traffic jam and uh, because it was March it was kind of late February the ground at the time was quite uh, soggy it wasn't as hard as it, it, they were the Russians were unlucky with the weather back then it wasn't as cold as it normally would be in February. So the tanks and the armored person, armored vehicles could not circumnavigate, go into the fields. They had to stay on the roads. And they essentially uh, got stuck in a very large traffic jam. I mean, partly due to um, a lack of fuel, lack of planning, and too many um, smaller groups not communicating with each other. So they essentially became sitting ducks for the Ukrainians who, under the cover of uh, forest, were able to, first of all, attack the, the, the front and the rear of those columns and uh, then uh, thereafter, uh, you know, destroy many of them with uh, artillery. So it was a, a big success for the Ukrainians. And it was something which was replicated in, in other parts of the war as well. The, 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 the Russian army demonstrated that they did not learn and are continuing to demonstrate that they, they are not learning from their mistakes. Yeah, the problem, as you've outlined, it appears to be that the decisions are being made in Moscow, in the Kremlin, by Putin and his generals or cronies. And... Then they're being handed down to the troops who are actually fighting in the field. The Ukrainians, on the other hand, have their best military brains in the field who can make decisions as events unfold. Is that, in a nutshell, Putin's biggest problem? That is Putin's biggest problem. I mean, it, it, it is an important military doctrine of NATO uh, to decentralize 
decision-making because commanders on the ground always know better about yes. what, what decisions to make. So uh, for the last eight years, Ukraine has been trained by uh, NATO and Na- Ukrainian commanders have been learning the NATO doctrines. Now, there still is the legacy of uh, the Soviet military system within the Ukrainian military, but they're further ahead down the road uh, of decentralization yes. than the Russians are. So that, meant, that means that decisions in uh, the uh, in the on the Ukrainian side take more into account the conditions on the ground while in the Russian side decisions are more uh, political if you like they're less focused on what is like yes. what is happening on the ground and and therein lies the the disparity in success between the two sides and also the um uh, the, the 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 political requirements of uh, Russia uh, seems to be m- driving many of the decision making uh, uh, of the Ukrainian of the Russian army, particularly obviously the first decision uh, of all to actually invade the country. So, what the Ukrainians and the Russians to some extent, have been doing is the the natural process of improving as you go along, learning from some of your mistakes. But the the Russians uh, are still committing the same mistakes that they made over a year ago. And that's mostly due to the uh, political requirements of Putin himself to secure uh, short-term progress at all costs. Now, there's a very interesting story you tell about the airport at Kherson, which is a city that Russia took, but Ukraine have subsequently retaken it. But there's an airport there, Kherson International Airport. It's difficult for me to try and pronounce it, but I will. Chernobyevka. Okay, Chernobyevka. Now, the Russians rolled in and they captured Chernobyevka in the first week of the war, but they failed to push the Ukrainian army beyond artillery range. Now, tell us what happened then, because it's a really good example of incompetence, as you point out in your piece. And as I stress, it is really excellent. And the currency, are lucky to have you. Well, thanks for that. Um, yeah, it, uh, airports and aerodromes are the most important um, supply uh, locations for, for, for the war. They're the most coveted. Uh, installations by both sides. So uh, the uh, airport at Chernobyevka, which incidentally um, were in talks with Ryanair before the war to <laughs> to to have uh, Ryanair flights there. So it, it it covers much of the south of the of Ukraine. The next airport over uh, on the east of on the west of that is Odessa. But Chernobyevka was it was a hugely important uh, supply route for the Russian southern offensive, which ultimately was trying to take uh, Odessa. So along that southern coast, they took Kherson very quickly and um, moved uh, very quickly towards Odessa, but got stuck just outside a city called Mykolaiv, halfway between Kherson and Odessa. And um, they did take the airport, but only uh, about 
20, 15 to 20 kilometers uh, from the front line. So that meant that the airport was within range of Ukrainian artillery. Um, yeah, so they, they, they used the airport as a, as a helicopter base. Yeah, they, 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 they brought in dozens of helicopters. They very quickly um, mobilized uh, as much as they could in order to as quickly as possible, push forward to take Mykolaiv and ultimately Odessa. But they never got further than 20 miles, 20 kilometers beyond um, uh, beyond Chernobyevka. So that meant that the airport was always under Ukrainian fire, uh, artillery fire. And uh, they would have been, you know, focused on that as the, the most important um, installation that the Russians controlled. But um, the I, I remember as early as the twelfth time you, the Chernobyevka was uh, uh, was was attacked by Ukrainian artillery and new recruits and Russian technical equipment was destroyed. It, it became a, a meme in the Ukrainian media that Chernobyevka was a bit like Groundhog Day. Yeah. Every few days, the Russians would bring in more equipment, more personnel, and they would just be like sitting ducks, destroyed by the Ukrainian artillery. Um, and ultimately, 30 uh, attacks, successful attacks on the city, uh, sorry, on the, on the town destroyed, uh, 30 waves of Russian, uh, artillery, uh, or sorry, R- Russian personnel and, uh, equipment. So it kind of speaks to the, uh, political requirements, uh, to at all costs. Yes. Take that southern offensive, take, you know, improve that southern flank. Despite the uh, obvious dangers, they kept on repeating the same mistake. Yes, and they're playing to a gallery at home. Putin has to play to that gallery. Ukraine is actually fighting the war cleverly, using its own wits and whatever else it has in the way of munitions and weaponry. Now, as you say, the airport story became a kind of a method of describing the incompetence of the Russians. The other interesting thing is the description in your piece about the Wagner Group, which is a now notorious militia. Prigozhin is their leader. He himself is a former prisoner, but the group appears to be made up of conscripts, people let out of prison, if they'll fight, and then they have an elite force, but they send the conscripts and the prisoners in first, and they're just cannon fodder. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Bizarre to imagine in this day and age that this is the way war is waged, you know, very similar to, you'd imagine, the way war was waged in feudalistic times. But, you know, it speaks to the modern-day feudalism of, of the Russian state that, you have 10,000 uh, highly trained Wagner contract uh, employees yes. and 40,000 convicts who have been released from Russian prison uh, with the promise of clemency if they can fulfill a six-month contract in Ukraine. Uh, unfortunately for many of them, they 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 don't 
fulfill that six month because they either die or get injured on the on the ground. The Wagner Group have been leading the charge in Bakhmut for the last four months. They've made very slow progress, but uh, more progress than the um, main Russian army has in other places. So Prigozhin is trying to use the, the, the small progress that they've had to gain uh, privileges for his group within the army and also to kind of uh, augment his political position at home. But essentially, they operate a system of cannon fodder where these convicts are taken out of prisons. They are moved to the front line by train, heavily guarded, uh, and pushed onto the uh, onto the battlefield and told if they retreat, they will be shot. So many of the conflicts who have been taken as prisoners of war, for example, by the Ukrainian side, have these terrible stories of, uh, of you know, being in the middle of the shooting range, both on the one side from the Ukrainians, the other yes. side from the, the Russian, their Russian commanders behind them. Um, and uh, they've been dying at a higher rate than any other group within the war. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Now, this conversation we're having, Johnny, about what you've seen and written for the currency, the context really is 
the resumption of the all-out war as it is in the late spring, you, you say, which would be in the not-too-distant future. Bakhmut has assumed this incredible importance. And again, you write about this in the piece, and it's ridiculous, really, isn't it? Because it has no great strategic importance. It, it has no strategic importance other than the amount of personnel that are being killed there. Um, from the Ukrainian point of view, they have been operating a, um, a defensive war quite cleverly by enticing Russian troops to areas that they know is of strategically less importance than others yes. and fighting them in these zones, knowing that whenever you attack uh, a, a, a position, in order for the attack to, to, to be successful, you generally need about a three-to-one ratio of personnel. And under those circumstances, there's always going to be a higher um, casualty rate on the, uh, with the attacking force than the defending force. So like one thing to, to consider about the, the, the war as a whole is, is something that I've kind of learned, which has surprised me a bit, but makes sense that it's, um, there's a big difference between, you know, force positioning when you're attacking and force positioning when you're defending. Yeah. It's not something that you can just switch overnight. You need to uh, mobilize all of the different positions and equipment for defense as opposed to attack. So it's, it's, it's almost like a, like a rugby game in the sense that you kind of always know when one team is going through its purple patch and is in attack mode. Yes. And then, you know, in about 10 or 15 minutes, the, the other team's going to basically reorient itself towards an attacking mode. So at the moment and for the last three or four months, the Russians have been in attack mode. Therefore, the Ukrainians have been in defense mode. And if you look at what the Russians have achieved in the last four or five months, it's very little. Um, they've lost a lot of uh, uh, technical equipment. They've lost a lot of personnel. And they've uh, made minuscule advances in all the different areas that they've been pushing in. Meanwhile, the Ukrainians have been busy uh, w with you know their international outreach and trying to train up new uh, recruits on um, new more modern equipment and you can expect the ukrainians to switch to uh, attack mode uh, towards the end of the uh, spring when the, the the ground hardens so we're talking about kind of mid to late april um so how useful will the tanks that the europeans the germans the British, I know the American tanks, I think they're called the Abrams, are very, very heavy, take a lot of shifting and mightn't get there for quite some time. How useful do you think that will be, Johnny, to the Ukrainian cause on the battlefield? Um, from what I believe, it could be anything from considerably useful to a complete game changer. Uh, there, there, there's three important metrics that uh, the, on, on which you can kind of compare these tanks. One is uh, the uh, distance at which they can, um, at, at which their cannons fire. So the, the, the new tanks, the modern NATO tanks, including the Challenger 2 from the UK, 
the German Leopard tanks and the American Abram tanks, they all generally have about a five kilometer range. The Russian, the top Russian tanks has three or four kilometer range. Right. What, what that means on the ground is that the Russian tanks will be in range of the foreign tanks before they can even shoot back. So yeah. that's a huge, significant, uh, 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 you know, uh, advantage. Another one is that the new tanks are equipped with much superior night vision equipment. So therefore, they're, you know, they're going to, uh, they will probably do start many of their attacks at night, knowing that they've got that superior technical advantage. But uh, also e- equally as important is that the uh, the new uh, NATO tanks are about twenty to forty percent heavier than the Russians the Russian tanks because their armor is thicker and made of uh, more modern um, uh, more modern metal mix. Yeah, um, and mostly they can withstand a hit by a, a, a Russian tank, while a Russian tank will not withstand a hit from those NATO tanks. So th- for those reasons, I believe this could be a, a game changer. Um, also, uh, very importantly, that these uh, Ukrainian tank commanders have been trained up in um, um these kind of in, in 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 mixed battle formations whereby you have uh tanks at the head of the battle uh you have armored personnel carriers with cannons behind you also have infantry walking with those uh, with those vehicles you have helicopters supported by uh fighter jets in a large battle formation um the U- russians have not been able to affect any of those uh, battle formations yet. And importantly, they lost a huge battle, probably the biggest battle, uh, tank battle of the war, in a place called Vulodar uh, at the a- yeah. at the end of January. They lost over 130 tanks in that battle. And since then, the Russians have not committed any large battle tanks to the front formation of any of their attacks. Always those battle tanks are just acting like artillery at the back while the infantry goes forward. So they're, they're too scared to risk the kind of battle formations that Ukrainians are now getting trained in by NATO uh, trainers. Now, you had an interview with a commander of a mobile infantry unit with Ukraine's 63rd Brigade describing a pretty harrowing battle. You don't use his name for obvious reasons. You give him a name, but for security purposes, you only give his first name, which is Andre. Tell me his story and the significance of your conversation and what happened, because they encountered the Wagnerites as well. Well, Andre is one of the... um subjects of our documentary, he was part of the counteroffensive to retake Kherson. After that was retaken, he was deployed to Bakhmut. And he told me uh, over the phone on a couple of uh, interviews what happened to him in Bakhmut. Uh, he was, uh, with his small uh, company of 20 soldiers, sent in to... Um, uh, support uh, a, a small trench system that already had another 20 soldiers in it that were, had come under attack 
by the Russians. Um, and it was something that was pretty standard. He expected it to be uh, something that he had done before, whereby they just increase the amount of counterfire. And uh, the Russians uh, thereafter stop knowing that um, they probably don't have the, the, the resources to take that trench position. But what he didn't know was that uh, on this particular day, the, the decision had been made to funnel considerable resources at that particular position. And what uh, he witnessed was the, uh, the, the, the cannon fodder approach of the yes. Wagnerites. So he, 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 he's in a trench that's probably about 400 meters long, uh, along the side of two fields. And, uh, the, the, uh, enemy is on the other side of, uh, these are huge fields in this part of the world. Like they're about, you know, one kilometer wide. Yeah. Um, so the enemy is in, uh, you know, trench positions a kilometer away or in the trees a kilometer away. And they're coming at them with uh, automatic uh, arms fire and mortar fire and uh, artillery with artillery support from behind. Um, now, order, mortar fire and artillery support is, uh, you know, inaccurate. So when you're in a trench, you're protected from artillery, even if it lands like, you know, 10 or 15 meters away. The, the, obviously, if it lands right in your position, you're in trouble, but most of them don't. So, uh, the, but these guys were intent on physically running at them from, uh, a, with using their handheld artillery, using their handheld, um, uh, machine guns. And um, they were able to see how they killed the first wave of uh, attackers. And then a new wave of attackers came uh, almost immediately afterwards, running over the bodies of the people that they just killed. And this was um, obviously, you know, these men had been just sent to the slaughter. And uh, of course, you know, it, it, when you throw so many bodies at a position, you do make some progress. And they did find themselves uh, almost enveloped, and they had to retreat. And the upshot was that out of the 30 or so uh, soldiers that were there, five of the Ukrainians were killed, and probably another 10 injured. But uh, their commander made his own um, um, estimation that 140 of the Russians had been killed. Yes, and that's a, an amazing story, an amazing statistic. And one of the things that Putin is invoking, you point this out in the piece you wrote for the currency, these are the same tactics from the Second World War that worked in Stalingrad. They're ruthless, they're wasteful, you point out, but Russia has hundreds of thousands of people to call on so that that kind of thing can be effective. But that's not a decision being made on the ground. It's a decision being made in Moscow, whereas Ukraine and their generals and their battlefield leaders are making decisions using their own intelligence. Those numbers, five lost as compared to 140, are dramatic. And if you multiply that around the size of this conflict and the areas covered, it's massive. Yeah, well, I think Putin has made a calculation that uh, this uh, system of fighting can work. 
Uh, he has full control over the media at home, so he can keep a lid on any protests from mothers who may, uh, you know, w- w- want to uh, raise the subject of this, you know, in, in the Russian media. So he, he knows he can um, send all these guys to their deaths and not suffer much of a backlash, a public backlash at home. Um, the question is, whether it will be successful in a modern war of the di- digital age. It was successful in Stalingrad, uh, but Putin seems to be uh, possibly, you know, sinking in the swamp of his own alternative history here because what worked 50 or 80 years ago may not necessarily work now. So he, uh, I think he, he, we should find out in the summer what level of um you know what level of progress the ukrainians can make armed with modern equipment and and a modern uh, approach to battlefield dynamics just a final question johnny from your own observations i know you're making a film a documentary film on all of this looking at it sort of dispassionately are we looking here at a long conflict a long war or when you mentioned uh, tanks perhaps, especially the the more nimble tanks that the Germans are sending and the Poles, the game changer might kick in earlier. And the other question I'd like to ask you is, can Putin survive a ghastly failure with all of those casualties and his military humiliated? Um, but the first question, uh, whether this will be a long war or not, we, we, do, we just don't know. Yeah. But I think if, if Ukraine can uh, make some significant progress from April until June and demonstrate that uh, their battlefield uh, strategies are working, then you can imagine that uh, it, it won't be a long war. But if they can't achieve that, then, yes, it looks like it, it, it could be a long war because it doesn't seem likely that any uh, treaty or peace agreement or even truce can be agreed on with uh, Putin, uh, anything yes. that, can, that, that can hold. And I mean, of course, Emmanuel Macron, the French, and the French are calling for negotiations and they're saying that Putin must be part of that. From where you're watching this, and observing it and participating in it as a journalist. Does that seem likely to you? No, I don't think negotiate. Right. Well, I think negotiations can just, uh, you know, bring in a truce, you know, a temporary truce. But both sides are going to increase their uh, their, their military positions, you know, within that, any kind of a truce, with the possibility that uh, it could flare up any time again. So I think, look, the, the, the war is always going to be there until Putin is gone. And uh, to to your second question, can Putin survive a humiliation? I don't think he can survive a humiliation. And I think what could happen, one of the options that could happen, is that the Russian uh, line collapses under the pressure of a well-resourced Ukrainian uh, uh, counteroffensive in the late spring or summer. I just came back from Kherson, which uh, had been retreated from by the Russians in November, 
and uh, the setting off a very solid front line along a kind of a mile-long river, uh, the Dnipro. Uh, but what's happened there is the Ukrainians are already starting to make progress on the east side of that river, and people on the ground have told me that they expect the Russians to retreat even further towards uh, Crimea on the east side of the river, uh, following Russian, following Ukrainian pressure. And uh, if if that breaks, which I predict it may in the next month, that will be another big story, uh, a, a fourth success, if you like, for the Ukrainians following. Kiev, Kharkiv, and Kherson. Um, so I'm uh, optimistic that the Ukrainians will make the progress that we all hope they will. Um, but it is hard to predict. You know, yes, R- Russia has huge reserves of uh, resources and personnel that they can continue to call on. And and of course, the big um, um, Joker card in the whole thing is whether the whether the Chinese will 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 yes. start to to support Russia with uh, heavy weaponry. Right. Okay, Johnny, we're very grateful to you for joining us from Kiev today. Johnny O'Reilly is a filmmaker and a journalist. He's written a piece for The Currency, which is an online publication and a very good one with top class journalists uh, working for them. We're grateful to Johnny, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.